Hello, and welcome to the RamGad Pod. I am your host, Jason Economou, Government Affairs Director for the Realtors Association of Maui, and this is my podcast. Today, I've got a very special episode for you with Alberta DeJetley. She is one of the candidates for the open Lanai seat of the Maui County Council. She is competing against Gabe Johnson in order to take the seat that is currently held by Ricky Hokama. Ricky Hokama, uh, as you may be aware, has termed out. He has completed five consecutive two-year terms. So by charter, he has to sit out this election, and that is why it is an open seat. This is a pretty hot race for this open Lanai seat. Um, A couple of things that that factor in here. Gabe Johnson has run two or three times uh, in the past few elections against Ricky Hokama, and he has lost. Interestingly enough, during one of those elections, Alberta DeJetley was actually on his campaign. So that that tells you something, that she is now running against him as his uh, primary competitor. Now, uh, Matt Mano was competing in the primary elections. However, he failed to really make a substantial impact on voters, so he did not get enough of a percentage to be considered for the general election. So the candidates for the Lanai seat of Maui County Council, once again, that's Gabe Johnson and Alberta DeJetley. And just so you know, Ram has decided to recommend Alberta DeJetley for that seat. So if you're considering who to vote for, Uh, and you are a RAM member, our recommendation when it comes to Lanai is to vote for Alberta DeJetley. And I think if you listen to this interview, you will understand why. Gabe Johnson, he is an okay candidate by my estimation. Uh, He had some, some issues when it came to our candidate interview process earlier this year in July, we, we had candidate interviews. We did a 30-minute interview with both Alberta and Gabe. And in my humble opinion, Alberta did a far superior job in that interview. Beyond that, I have had the opportunity to get to know her a little bit more, just by virtue of the fact that I go to the dog park at Keopulani Park, and she was hanging out at Keopulani Park, so so we got to know each other a bit better, and um, I really like Alberta DeJetley. It's not that Gabe Johnson is a bad candidate and Alberta DeJetley is the lesser of of two evils. Alberta DeJetley is a really good candidate. Um, Her background... Her work background, her professional background, is extremely diverse. She has had experience in so many different fields. I mean, Gabe Johnson's big selling point is that he's a farmer, but Alberta DeJetley was also a farmer, a fairly successful farmer at that, which you're going to learn in the podcast. But she's also run a newspaper. Um, she's run a taxi business. She's run hotels. I mean, this, this individual has practical knowledge as far as what businesses need to succeed. And she's run these businesses in Hana, she's run them on Lanai, she's run them in various places. So she understands the the different um, elements and issues that the different areas of the county can have, uh, the, the impacts that they can have. Really, I just, I want you to listen to this. Don't make up your mind based on what I'm saying. Really hear her out. There are things that me and Alberta 
do not agree on. Uh, I even referenced the cat thing at a certain point. We don't agree on, on how to handle the feral cat issue. We don't agree on a couple of issues. But overall, I think she, she definitely, definitely has the work ethic and intelligence to be successful as a county council member. And she definitely has the attitude to provide a high level of service and care to the people of this county. Uh, getting to, to talk to her, you realize that she is just a really caring, um, and I'll, I'll go as far as saying loving person. She is super sweet. Even when she doesn't like somebody, she's nice about them. She loves animals. She loves the Ina. She, she is just filled with aloha. And um, I really like Alberta DeJetley. I hope you guys do too. Please take a listen to this podcast. Before you do that, let me give you a couple of quick updates, I guess. Well, first, let me say thank you. Thank you if you paid your dues on time. If you didn't pay your dues on time, I hope you're doing okay. I hope you get around to paying them. Um, But if you did, you're awesome, and I love you. Uh, Ah, yes, other important news. You guys may have noticed in Thursday things, I have now dubbed myself the Ghoulish Affairs Director for the month of October. Uh, the board of directors has agreed to acknowledge me as the ghoulish affairs director, and my my first order of business is to do a virtual costume contest. So check out the rules. We have categories for cakey, um, for individuals, and for group costumes. Uh, please, no more than five individuals per group. And um, we we have a process in place. If you want to submit your photo for the virtual costume contest, you can uh, email that to Miley. Uh, M-A-I-L-E at R-A-Maui.com. She is my ghoulish affairs intern, and she will handle uh, those submissions. Check out Thursday Things for more uh, detail on what those rules are. Now, I'm going to go ahead and let you get to this interview. So enjoy. Happy Aloha Friday, and take care. All right, Alberta, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? All right. My name is Alberta DeJetley. I was born on the island of Molokai in 1945 as Alberta Morita. My dad was a police officer under the command of Hannibal Tavares, who later became our mayor. Hannibal was the captain of the Molokai station. And on the day I was born, he told my dad, well, Morita, you go home to take care of your two daughters and I'll go to the hospital to see your baby girl. And my dad being very Japanese, you know, all he really needed was another baby girl. So that was three baby girls. And he was looking for boys, right? That's the Japanese thing. So he went home to take care of my two older sisters and Hannibal came down to the hospital to see me. And I think it was love at first sight. He was (laughs) always a big influence in my life. And later on, as I became an adult, I saw more of he and his, his wife and family. And people's lives overlap in different ways. And I was really, really fortunate that his sister-in-law, her name was Miyoko Sumida, she lived out in Hana, and she worked at the Hanamawa gift shop. So that's jumping ahead of the story. But Miyoko, his sister-in-law, taught me all I know about retailing. I learned everything I did about retailing from her, but that's a totally different story. So going back to Molokai, we lived right next door to the old Pauhana Inn, you know, right there on the seaside, next to the Molokai Pier. And every day, my sisters and I would play out on the sand. And as our two baby brothers arrived on the scene, they played on the beach with us. 
and there are these tiny seashells that would wash up. It's like a type of coral that bunches together. And we would gather those up and drape them all over ourselves on like crowns and on our shoulders, like drapes, you know, cloaks, and play on the beach. And I always felt that I was totally out of step with my brothers and sisters because I was positive that I had been born into the wrong family. Huh. And every day I went to the beach and I looked out to sea and I waited for a dolphin to come to swim to shore to rescue me from my family and take me to my real family that was living somewhere out on the ocean. And of course, <laughs> never came. So when I was six years old, my family moved to the island of Lanai. And on Lanai, we were very, very fortunate because we moved up to the old Koali Ranch. It was the headquarters of the Lanai Ranch where the giant pine tree that uh, Walter Mary Gibson, who was originally one of the owners of the island, he planted it back in the 1800s. And the, the tree was there and the ranch camp was still there. And we had these wonderful, wonderful Hawaiian families that lived in the ranch camp. And our, uh, when we came, we, we had a house that had been prepared for us. And we walked out, out of this house. It was really spooky because we were living in the town where everything in Lanai City, where everything was close together. And then we went up to the ranch and there was this old house set back in the trees, surrounded by trees, nobody around. And I remember we all held hands as we walked through the house exploring it. And we came out and it was, it felt really spooky. And there was this really nice Hawaiian lady, our, who we later became our Aunt Becca, Rebecca Richardson. She was waiting outside on the sidewalk to greet us. And she was so loving and so kind. And she became, she and her husband became our Hanai auntie and uncle. And her sister, Ivalani, and her husband, William, lived right next door to us. So they were part of the original Hawaiian families that settled on the Na'i way back in the 1800s. Oh, wow. And they had lived at Kiomoku. So when the ranch camp moved from Kiomoku up to Kueli, they also moved up to the ranch camp. And Uncle, Uncle Ernest and Auntie Becca were the last two inhabitants of the original ranch. So when the lodge was being built, the lodge at Kuali was being built, Mr. Murdoch said that he would not be able to move the houses that they were living in. They had too many termites. So it was very sad. Um, Auntie Becca threatened to tie herself, chain herself to the porch and be demolished with the house. She That's didn't want to move. leave it at all. Oh, it was, it was for a blind lady like that to say, no, I, I'm not going to move. I'm going to you know, chain myself to my house. That was really something. But uh, Mr. Murdoch moved the house that we lived in originally and our Auntie Eva's house to the side. And Uncle Ernest and Auntie Becca moved into the house after it was renovated and next door, Uncle's brother John and Auntie Hannah moved into the second house. So those houses are still there and they're still part of the original ranch's history. But so many things have happened. I, I was really fortunate because I was able to come back to Lanai and see the transition of the from the pineapples to tourism to the development of the hotels. And I was actually working here when the hotels were being built originally, the uh, Lodge Koali and the Manali Bay. And it was really exciting because I was also there when the pineapple plantation closed and Governor Waihe came over to Lanai 
and said goodbye to all of the plantation workers as they were getting off the field trucks for their last day of work, saying goodbye and shaking hands. So there are so many memories there and so many things have happened on Malai. And I just feel really, really blessed because I have been a party. I have had a front row seat on everything that has happened here. And my brother and I, my brothers and I are all history buffs on Malai. So we, we like talking story about the old days and reading the books about what life was like doing the plantation days and then doing the ranching days and life at Kamoku Town. So we have seen a lot of changes. And now, of course, with Mr. Ellison being here and everything being different, I feel as if I'm, I still have a front row seat and I'm still very actively involved in recording and understanding everything that is happening around me. So I really think that makes me a very, very good candidate to represent the Na'i. Because you can't really you can't really be planning for the future if you don't know what your past was. And well, I lived the past. Arguably, you know, the the major selling point for Ricky Hokama in all of his various candidacies has been his institutional knowledge, his historical knowledge, and the the fact that he's had this this front row seat to um, major shifts and and policy changes throughout the years. And so even though you and Ricky Hokama are very different individuals, uh, it is interesting that you both share that same key selling point, which is you've got the, the knowledge having been at the front seat for, for so long. I mean, from the day you were born, you were hanging out with, with Hannibal Tavares. So, you know, that's, that's <laughs> a name that casts a long shadow. You know, it's, it's, it's a big name. So, so yeah, how do you think that, um, that it, do you see that advantage? Do you think that'll equip I you? Yeah. I do, because over the years, I've seen all of the movers and shakers pass through Hawaii, pass through Maui County. One of my biggest regrets in life is after I got out of high school, I was supposed to go to the University of Hawaii, and I went to the university, but I, I was a very experienced horseback rider, horsewoman. And when I got to Honolulu, I had all these friends, all these very wealthy friends with horses. And they would call me up and say, oh, well, we're, we're going to go do such and such, removing cattle and Eva. Oh, we're going to go exercise pony, ponies, ponies. We're doing this and we're doing that. And I'd say, I'm on, I'm in. <laughs> and instead of going to class, I went horseback riding. <laughs> so while it was a lot of fun, it soon came to an end when <clears throat> I was generally <clears throat> Politely, politely asked at the end of my first semester to leave. <laughs> so it was time to go and get a job. And, you know, I'm just out of high school. Horseback riding isn't a job skill that you can actually use to get a real job. So I had to go out on job interviews and I interviewed with Elmer Cavallo at the legislature at, to become one of, you know, the pages and people that run around delivering messages. And I really, really wanted to do that. My two sisters had worked as, as uh, AIDS runners for um, Pedro de la Cruz when he was in the legislature. When they were in going to college, they worked at the legislature part-time. So I really wanted to do that. And I was living with my sister Phyllis and she said, you can't do that. It's only a part-time job. You need to get a real job. So I got a job as a dental assistant and learned how to do that on the job. And I hated it. I, I liked the work, but the dentist that I worked for, all he could talk about was his 
Mustang convertible because the Mustangs had just come out and with every patient all day long, that's all I ever heard was this Mustang. Sounds so it, it was it was terrible. So finally I left that job and I went to work for um not Castle and Cook, but uh QH Davies in downtown Honolulu. And that was one of the big major big five corporations. So I was a mail clerk in this five-story old office building in downtown Honolulu and rode up and down all day long in this, you know, uh, manual operator. There's an operator, oper elevator operator who worked in it and she took me up and down and I went to all of the floors and got to visit with everybody as I was delivering the mail. So that was a perfect job for me. But so I are you, I, I'm, I'm going to stop you just because I want to ask a few questions. Um, sure. Oh, you, you, you turned my button on, so I just... Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. It makes it easier for me. As I told you, I just got back from an extra extra long weekend, so so I'm a little bit uh, drowsy myself. You, you can keep on talking. You do all the heavy lifting. But I do want to ask a quick question, which is you mentioned that, that both of your sisters had been pages. You immediately went to, to being a page. That is not necessarily a common... Uh, path oh. for a college student. So was your family, I know your, your dad had known uh, Chief Hannibal Tavares when he was police chief. Did your family stay involved and interested in politics? Was your, was your dad or your mom involved in politics? Or did, no. did you all just kind of come to this? Well, I know you're going to ask me about it later, but I think we are all very heavily influenced by our grandmother because you were going to ask me later about who, who did I respect most and where did I get my drive and ambition from. My grandmother was really an amazing woman. She was full-blooded Hawaiian. She was born on the backside of Molokai and then lived at um, Pukuo. She was widowed when she was still very young. And she had uh, a child by another person. And that child went to live with the Hawaiian, his Hawaiian relatives. And then she married a German man who was a surveyor for the territory of Hawaii. And the story, you know, the story, depending on which family member you're talking to, the story varies. But the story I got from my grandmother was that my grandfather married him, her, because he was looking for a housekeeper, a cheap housekeeper that he didn't pay. So his friends told him, well, uh, how about Grace? She's, she's still single. You can marry her. So he did marry her. And they had a son, my Uncle Robert. And then um, my, my grandmother had three daughters. Uh, she had my Auntie Leonie, my Auntie Catherine, and then my mother, who was the youngest. And when my mother was 12 years old, their father died. So my grandmother was very limited formal education, became a practical nurse. She grew most of their own food. There was no welfare in those days. You either mm. did, did or died, you know. She didn't believe in, in asking other people for help, and she took care of her family. My, my uncle was sent to Germany to live with his German relatives and to learn his culture there. And when he finally came home after he retired in Germany and moved back to the United States, he wanted to learn the Hawaiian side of his culture. So he spoke fluent Hawaiian. He could sing, he could play the ukulele, and he danced up. So it, it was amazing. My grandmother spoke fluent Hawaiian, but we were growing up in an age where 
Hawaiian children were not spoken to in Hawaiian. You, it was like, no, you, you, couldn't, you couldn't be Hawaiian. You couldn't teach your grandchildren your keiki how to be Hawaiian. They had Forced to be Hawaiian. assimilation. English, yes. And she never spoke Hawaiian to us. And my eldest sister, Marlene, did become a really, really beautiful hula dancer, amongst other things. But uh, the rest of us, no, we, it just wasn't in our gene pool. But the thing that really impressed me and that I remember the most is that my grandmother, I was about seven or eight years old, she bought us a book, a row book encyclopedias from a traveling salesman. I think she paid $5 a month for the set. She sent it to us and we all read it from cover to cover. It, it was just amazing that we had that from her, yeah. that we got all of this knowledge. So um, my brother, Albert is really involved in community. He's been part of the culture center here. He's retired. Um, my dad was really active in the hunting and fishing community. We came to Lanai for him to be the game warden here. And my grandmother was always, although she lived on Moloka'i and we were on Lanai, she was always a major part of our lives because she just knew. She just, she just knew what we should be doing. She never told us, oh, you need to read, oh, you need to do this, or you need to do that. do that. She just showed us, and we did. And I think she instilled in all of us this um, service, this, this mentality that we're here to serve other people, and we're, we're here to work for other people. So we're, we've all been active in some kind of community service work. So here we are. <laughs> that was the draw. That was the draw. So it, it was really exciting. And then, you know, as the years went by, of course, I, I married my husband, Tony, and he became the general manager of Hotel Hana Maui in Hana. And there again, I had a front row seat because we were just at this transitional period where Hana was still really old fashioned. There were less than 800 people living there. Oh, wow. The hotel was the center of the whole community. And we were the largest employers of the community. It was still, there was still, although the original owners, the Fagans were, were gone and were, had passed on, we still maintained a lot of their old traditions of hospitality and Hawaiian hospitality. So we did that. And then my husband got cancer and became very ill and eventually died in 1981. So one of the questions that you were going to ask me was, what book would I recommend? And I thought about, I read a lot, and I thought about it, what book really influenced the way I look at life? When my husband was already diagnosed with cancer and had just survived a major operation, I was with him at Queens Hospital by myself. We had two, our two sons were already born. Um, David was nine, and his, my son Tony was four. We had an excellent, excellent nanny who was helping us through all this. And I was there and, you know, you sit in the hospital all day, all day, just you're there. Yeah. I went to take a break and I went to the Alamana bookstore and I walked in and as soon as I walked in across on the shelves, there was this yellow book up in the shelf and I went to it and it was Elizabeth Cooper Ross's book on death and dying. Mm. And that, I bought it and I took it back and I read it and it made a huge difference in the way I was feeling. Because I was really angry. I was really mad that my husband was dying. I had two children. We had this fabulous life in Hana. 
what were we going to do? You know, how did we get past all that? How, and I really felt angry because my husband was so focused, his whole energy was focused on what was going to happen to his beloved hotel mm. when he passed. And my thing was, I want our children, I want your sons to have this time for you to spend with them. So they have, even with Tony, you know, at four years old, how much do you remember? When someone passes at that age, uh, what do you remember? And I wanted my boys to have some memory of their dad, some solid quality time together. So um, before my husband died, he died in 1981. In 1980, the lease of Hotel Lanai became available. At that time, it was the old Lanai Inn. And it had it's always been owned by the company and different people had leased it over the years. So the lease was available and I said, okay, what am I going to do? So we applied for the lease. I got the lease. And after my husband died, my boys and I moved over to Lanai. My sister, Mina Morita, who went on to become, you know, she was in politics. She was uh, the North Kauai representative for 19 years. And then she became the head of the PUC. Nina was here on the Naive running the hotel, and she wanted to go back to Honolulu because she had been working at Princeville. So when I came back with my two boys, she went back to Kauai, where she still is. And then I took on the hotel and renovated it, just drove everybody crazy, had a lot of exciting adventures here with my, my two sons. We did a lot of different things, really, really enjoyed the island. And then... It was a horrible time as far as running a business goes. The economy had tanked. I mean, mm. I was paying 22% interest on my loans. Wow, 22% interest. <laughs> 22, it was the worst possible time to start a business, right? That's like so there was, That's oh, <laughs> But people were doing it. So I, I had the hotel and I had employees and I had people working for me and it's a small hotel, so you end up doing a lot of things yourself. Like, I had problems finding a baker, and I, I love to bake. So I said, oh, the hell with that. I'm not going to fuss about it anymore. I'm just going to start baking pies for dessert. So I was baking about 20 pineapple, pineapple pies, fresh pineapple pies every week, and about 12 lemon meringue pies every week. <laughs> and banana cream pies and it was just crazy but we had a really good time and then when I finally uh, woke up one morning I said this is crazy we're not making any money we're begin I'm beginning to spend my own nest egg money on paying for the hotel instead of supporting my kids mm. so I got I got I started selling uh taking the real estate exams you know taking a real estate course, got my license as a uh, associate, hung my license up in Kahului with Carol Ball and associates, and sold my lease and moved back to Maui. <laughs> so that, that was it, our transitional time. But if I had known that Mr. Murdoch, this is in 1984, if I had known that David Murdoch was going to come and buy Lanai in 1985, I would have hung on by my teeth. As, as it was, moving back to Maui was a really good good move for me because that's how I became a professional writer. So 
that's another story entirely. But then I was hired to come back to Lanai to produce a community newsletter called the Lanayan for Castle and Cook, where the newsletter explained all of the different changes with photographs of what was happening on the island. So there I was again, right back in the thick of all of the action. Not just observing, so, but documenting the, yeah, the action. It, it was, it was, I, because I have it all recorded. You know, I have all of my old issues of the Lanayan. And after the Lanayan, I moved back to Hana to start a paper that was called the Hana News and got involved in the start of all of the changes there because the company that my husband and I worked for, Limer Initiatives, sold it to uh, Kilohana Maui, a Japanese company. And eventually they closed and went bankrupt. So they were my major advertisers for the newspaper. So when that happened, I closed down my newspaper and started writing uh, full time for the people. And in 1996, I moved back to Lanai. And what did I do? The first thing that I did when I got back, got back involved with the community newspaper again until I started my own paper in 2008. So. It's, it's been a long journey. <laughs> I want to jump back a little bit because by, by 1981, um, which I'm, I'm sorry to, to bring up the death of your husband, but you know, I'm just sorry about that. That's, that's tragic. That's but, life. But in, that's what happens. It, it is. Um, but in 1981, here you are, a single mother with two kids who is running are you currently running two hotels at that point? The one in Hana and the, no, the one? No, my husband, my husband was the general manager of the Hana Hotel, Hotel okay. Hana I managed the company store. I had a retail business. The retail shop was owned by the hotel, and I was the buyer manager. Gotcha. But I also had a U-Drive company, a car rental business that I ran with. Uh, I was in partnership with Frank Abrams, who owned Valley Isle Motors. And these things just happened to me. You know, I'm sitting around minding my own business. And then Frank was, we knew Frank from different things. And he comes over and he goes, hey, Alberta, why don't, why don't we get together and do uh, car rentals in Hana? I go, we can do that. What kind of partnership are we going to have? And he said, I'll give you 51%. You run the business and I'll give you 51% and I'll take the other 49. And I'll trade out cars with you every year, brand new cars. You just run the business at Hana. So for all of that time, I had a brand new car every, every year. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty nice. That's a pretty fun deal. But you are, you know, I always think of you as, as a journalist. Um, and I think a lot of people don't realize that you are a serial entrepreneur. I am. And I have the knack of starting businesses at the very worst of times. Because when I started uh, Hana, you know, Hana News, I didn't have any money. I just, did it. I just said, I'm going to do this. And I went and I did it. Then when I came back to Lanai and the original paper, Lanai Times, which I started in 1990, and then left with Bill Palmer from Gold Coast Publishing, when I came back, that paper had been sold. And I worked for the new owners for a very short time. Didn't like their style or their way of doing business. And in 2008, I said, to hell with this. I'm out of here. And I started the night today with no money. And absolutely no money at all in the very, very worst of times. And my advertising rates were really, really low because I wanted to be able to have all of the businesses be a part of the newspaper. And 
one of the things that I'm proudest of is that when I sold the newspaper, more than three fourths of my original advertisers were still with me. Oh wow, that yeah, is impressive. That was it was really really good. But they they all stuck stuck through with with me through thick and thin. And if they were having a hard time, I just say ah, no bill this month. He said you can't do that. And I said who's going to tell me I can't? But that was the whole thing about doing this business was to help other people. And I'm I'm still in that mode because I haven't even gotten to around to telling you about my farm, which. I was, Lene, you know, we have so much vacant land here. And I was riding around, we had, my sons and I had dirt bikes and then later graduated into quads. So I was riding around with a friend down toward the airport and we went past this area and he goes, what's all this? And I said, oh, this is all farmland that Mr. Murdoch opened up. After the plantation closed, he thought that people would be interested in farming. So all of these lots are subdivided. They have water, they have buildings for storage, and they're all marked off. He said, why don't you get one? So that, that sounds like a plan. So I went into the office at Castle and Cook and said, I want, I want one of the farm lots down by the airport. So they said, sure, no business plan, no money, nothing. They signed me up for a lot. I had that farm from 2003 until 2016, and I took it from one acre to 18 acres during that time. It, it was unbelievable, just really, really unbelievably beautiful. And I got that from my grandmother. What she, were you growing? Just, I had about seven acres in apple bananas. I had papayas. Um, I had lettuce. I had all these root crops, I had citrus. I even did a three acre field of cassava for a mainland company who was interested in growing it as a biodiesel crop. So that was really exciting. They sent me 18 different varieties of cassava and they had to be planted in what they call rotation. So each field had the same plants in a different order and everything had to be numbered and recorded onto a plot map. And then when it came time to harvest it, I thought that they were going to come with real laborers farm help to harvest the damn thing. And they came with their executives. So it was pouring rain and these guys never picked up a pickaxe or a shovel before. And it, we were just totally covered with mud. And every plant that we pulled up out of the ground had to be measured and weighed. So it, it was a huge process. So after it was all said and done, they decided that Lanai did not have enough uh, water to support oh. the kava. So they they had me uh, cut up all of the stalks, number them, you know, label them for them, put them into a refrigerated container, and it went to Hamakua on the Big Island. I I never found out what actually happened with the plants after they left me, but it was really exciting. We did a project with the University, uh, the Tropical Ag University of Hawaii. At that particular point in time, a lot of the farmers were losing their banana crops. Their bananas were being um, dying from the banana bungee top disease. Lanai does not have that disease. So these researchers came over, they did clones, they took samples of the corn, you know, the part of the banana plant that you would plant. They took 
test samples to their lab, tested them for banana bungee top, and when they came back clean, they came back to Lanai and they grew 60,000 plants from my fields. Wow. They, they, they took these livers, they put them into test tubes, grew them out to until they're about three inches tall, then put them into potted mix, grew them out until they were five to six inches tall, and then finally gave them to the farmers. So that for me was a really, I like to do that kind of thing. It's, it's more than just growing food. It's doing the research and being involved with people doing research who can develop better ways of farming for Hawaii farmers. Because it was major. All, all the banana crops on Oahu were dying. And it's not that you can go in there and save any of them. When you have banana bungee top, you have to destroy the whole field and it's all burnt. So That's that terrible. was the project. I still miss my farm a lot. I'm still thinking that somehow or another, as my life evolves, I'll get back into doing some kind of uh, farming project. So I like to do that. Were you... I got to ask, and, and I should know this already. Were you endorsed by the Chamber of Commerce? Yes. Okay, good. I, I was going to say, it's a terrible injustice if you weren't, because, I mean, practical experience in farming, um, hotel management, retail, uh, uh, taxi cab company. Yeah, your, yeah. your, your car rental company. Fell into my lap, too. The taxi service fell into my lap, too. About two years ago, Greg Delacruz owns the Maui Transportation Company, Delacruz Transportation on Maui saw there was a license available on the night, so he applied for it and got it. So he bought one car over, drove it around a few times, but he couldn't find anybody to work for him. He couldn't find anybody to manage the business. And, you know, the newspaper was a labor of love. I didn't really ever make very much money out of it. I had a lot of good experiences with it, but bottom line, dollar-wise, I wasn't really... I was subsidizing the paper and I wasn't really getting anything financially back, very much back from it. So that's a I lot of newspapers. Him. Yeah. And I saw him and I told myself, okay, I was thinking I needed some kind of a real job. And I told myself, okay, the next time I see that taxi driving around town, I'm going to chase it down. And I'm going to ask this man if he will buy an ad from me. I'm in the newspaper business. I sell ads. So I met him at the Catholic church. He had pulled into the church and we got out and I introduced myself and we were talking. I said, oh, are you here to visit with Father Jose, who was Filipino and the, the uh, priest at the church? And he looked at me and he said, no, I came here to pray for a driver. I came to see if I could pray for somebody to be my manager. And I never said, that's amazing because for the past two weeks, I've been thinking that I need to find a real job. <laughs> <laughs> so we shook hands and our business just exploded. It surpassed all of his expectations. So we have had a really, really good working relationship. I'm still involved with him, but our taxis are sitting here on the night, totally ground. So I, I do have people who want to work for us when and if it starts up again. So I, I have taken the past six months on clearing up my life so that I can be totally committed to becoming a public servant. I really, really feel strongly that I have the skills 
and the experience and the knowledge to help us get this county through this pandemic and to get businesses up and going again. We really need to do this. The thing that scares me the most right now is a lot of people seem to think that we're going to flip a switch and everything will start up again. Yeah. It, it might be a year or two years before we are anywhere near back to normal. It's really scary. And what do we do with all of the people who are now unemployed and all of the people who can't pay their rent and all of the people who are waiting in food lines for food because they don't have money to feed their families? So how are we going to take care of these people? I don't have all the answers. And I think that if we get into office, all of the business-minded people that the chamber has endorsed, we can do it. Working together, we, we can do it. I don't like to say you can't do this or you can't do that. We can, we can get this county moving again, but it's going to take a joint effort of all of the different segments of the community, all of the different businesses, all of the people who are saying, well, it can't be done. Yes, we can do it, but it's going to take a lot of hard work. Yeah. So that's the round focus now is I'm going to be totally centered on rebooting the economy and getting people back into a safe zone again. I think, I think that's a great position to be running from. And I think you, you certainly have the requisite uh, experience and knowledge to, to speak with authority on what happens when Hawaii sees these economic downturns. What happens when they last longer than we want them to? What happens when suddenly you have a whole industry that has gone out of business and you need to retrain people? You know, you having seen what happens when agriculture shifts to tourism, you know, that's, that's useful knowledge. But one of the, the things that I like about your candidacy is that you can speak knowledge, knowledgeably on a number of different things. Um, this is, I'm, I'm going to pick on, on somebody who's not currently on the council uh, and who I've never really had a full conversation with, Mike White. I'm going to pick on Mike White. And, and I'm not going to do it in a mean way, but what I will say is if Mike White starts talking about agriculture or running a small business, I have a hard time believing that he has much direct knowledge about it. If he starts talking about bigger industry and, and larger, broader economics, then I'm, I'm thinking to myself, okay, maybe that's in this guy's wheelhouse. But he doesn't strike me as a small town farmer because uh, to the best of my knowledge, he's not. You can talk I've about- I've been down what, in the dirt. I have yeah. been down in the dirt. I, exactly. I had the hands on the knees to prove it. I've been down in the dirt. I know what I'm talking about. I, I know what needs to be done. I know how to market. And I think there's this, this false dichotomy that's being built up. And in your race, it's a really uh, good one to look at because you've, you've got the, the slate of more pro-business candidates over here that the, the chamber has endorsed and put forward. And then you have the, the quote unquote Ohana candidates that, that the Maui Pono network has put forward. And it creates this false dichotomy that you can either be for business or for the environment, but you can't be for both. Or, or you, you can't, can't be for both. Exactly. You and that's why I like both. folks like you. And, you know, also, I like folks like Mike Molina, too. He, he's kind of also in that category where he'll come up with some environmental legislation, some pretty radical environmental legislation, like that plastic bag ban, back when, when that was first introduced and proposed, that was radical. Now it seems run of the mill, but oh. he's also seen as this pro-business candidate. Uh, you can be both. And in, in Maui County, 
where we're supposed to have these nonpartisan elections where nobody has a party that they're running under the banner of. Uh, I, I really think you are both. I, I think that you've got that, that good balance of experience where you know, if the county does shift towards agriculture, you have actually been involved in agriculture. And so even if you're not necessarily keen on that movement yourself, you're going to be able to provide valuable input in that move. If the county you know, tries to, to create a safer plan to, to revive tourism to some degree in the hotels, having been in the hotel business, you know all the moving parts so you can speak knowledgeably with people. And when they're telling you about the regulations that they're going to impose on their own businesses, you could say, that's not really going to do anything or yeah, that's a good idea. Uh, I mean, I, I, don't, uh, I, I don't have as much faith in your competitor. <laughs> but but we don't we don't need to get into that uh, per se. But to bring it back to you, what what insights do you have? What advice do you have as as more so as somebody who has had small businesses during economic upheaval? Do you have any advice for people out there right now who are trying to to keep their head above them? Right now, keeping your head above water is really really important you need to take advantage of every grant, every loan, every program that the county is offering, the state or the county is offering to try to stay in business. But you reach a point where you have to start thinking about the bottom line and what is it doing to your family. And mm. if it comes to that point where it's going to be them or the business, choose your family. You have to choose your family. You have to think about your children's welfare, your wife's welfare, how are you going to continue to support your family? And if it means closing your business so that you can live to do another day, then do it. You know, for me, making, understanding that I could no longer afford to keep the hotel was really major. It's, I was seeing my own money just flying out the door, meeting payroll, and it just came to a point where, okay, I cannot do this anymore. I need to stop. And I stopped. With the farm, I would love to still have my farm. But when I closed down my farm, Maui County was having a huge outbreak of that rat lung worm disease. Mm. And I had all of the factors that create that disease. I had rats, I had African snails, huge African snails, and I had the semi-slugs roaming on my farm. I'd go down in the morning and there'd be 50 slugs crawling over my plants. Am I gonna eat that? Am I gonna sell that plant to you to eat? No, I can't do that. So I said, okay, enough, I'm out. And I closed down. And people said, you know, even now they, they still think I have the farm and they go, oh, Alberta, I miss your bananas. Oh, Alberta, I miss your papayas. Oh, Alberta, I miss your vegetables. My vegetables were like unbelievably beautiful. <laughs> and I miss them too. So maybe one day I'll get back into farming, but not right now. I have other things that need to be done. I think there is a place for small farms. I think a two-acre farm can easily be managed by a couple, especially if they're able to live on their farm rather than live somewhere else. Because if you're living on your farm in the morning, you can get up and you can walk into your fields and you can check. They call it surveying. They, when you're doing all of these different things, you walk your fields every day and you're surveying your fields to see if you see any new pests, any new damage. How are the different things going? And walking around your farm in the morning with a cup of coffee is just at sunrise. It's just absolutely one of the most beautiful things that you could do. 
is to do that. And in the evening, if you're living at your farm, to be able to sit in a field of vegetables, maybe with a glass of wine or a soft drink or whatever, and watch the sun go down and the moon come up over your fields. Oh, it's just heavenly. It's the most wonderful life you can imagine. So that kind of farming is different from industrial farming where you do the big plantations. Yeah. But I think huge I'm, satisfaction in it. I'm a, a big proponent of probably both, but, but I think subsistence farming to some degree or another should really be incorporated in people's lifestyles. And especially out here on Maui where things, life just wants to grow. Um, we live in, in Pacacalo, and one of the things that I love is walking around my neighborhood, you see everybody's growing something. Dragon yes. fruit, papaya, lilikoi, bananas. We, we have those things growing on our property, and it's a small property in a densely packed neighborhood. But I get uh, probably not the same level of satisfaction, but a similar type of satisfaction when I'm eating a lilikoi that grew in my yard or a papaya that grew in my yard or when I can give somebody the gift of something that grew in my yard. And we often stress from a resilience standpoint and a food security standpoint, the importance of agriculture on a small scale and a large scale. But you touched on the mental health standpoint. And I think people, human beings really are programmed to take joy in growing something that's that's real that's tangible that we can can give and that we can receive and that we can eat and that nourishment is good for the soul it's good for the mind and more people need that i think we would probably have a much happier world if just one of those hours out of the the week that we spend on our cell phones we plant a banana tree in our yard and just let it grow and and i'm telling you anybody that's listening if you try that you're going to find joy, more joy in your life over the course of six months to a year when you see this thing grow and, and provide fruit. People tell me that they don't have space to grow food in their yard, but you know, on the night we have very small yards and I could take you on a walk around town and see all these homes where every inch of their yard is filled with food. They're going, they're going a bit of melon, they're going different kinds of greens, they're going, going uh, eggplant, they're growing green onions. I have this gardening concept. It's called, this is my own idea that I developed over the years. I call it the Simon Garden. Okay, a Simon Garden are, is that you're going to plant all the things that you can go outside and pick from a pot or from the ground that you can put in your Simon bowl because Simon ramen, Simon is cheap. And with a can of Spam or a can of Vienna sausage or a can of tuna into that, then you add your bok choy or a little bit of watercress if you're lucky enough, a little bit of green onions. But you get the idea that yeah. you can pluck these different greens and put it into your salmon bowl. You can grow baby carrots. You don't have to big, do the big long carrots. You can do the miniature sized carrots and cut that up. You can go daikong and cut that up. But you get the idea. You can grow beans on a trellis and cut up your beans and put that in your salmon bowl. But it's some people call it a square foot garden by the yard where you do a, um, a three by three garden bed and you grow the taller things in the middle and the shorter things on the side. But that's the kind of mindset that you might not be able to grow corn, but you can grow green onions easily and you can do all the different Chinese cabbages easily and beans. Everybody can grow a few stalks of beans. I mean, even and if you they, just... 
get, you know, one meal a week average where you're supplementing it with, with something from your garden, you could save $20 a week easily. That Easy. adds up. Yes. Yes. You, you really can. So yeah, I, I, I really encourage people just, you know, get, get some pots and do a potted garden. If, if you don't have good soil or if you're in an apartment, just get a few pots and grow things in a few pots for yourself. It really makes a difference. So what do you want to talk about now? I want to, let's, let's talk politics a little bit. Let's, let's okay. talk politics and policy. And what would you like to see going on differently with the council? You know, everybody who runs for office, there's something that triggered them to run for office. There's some reason that they're doing it. If you thought everything was perfect, you wouldn't be running for office. So what kind of change do you want to punctuate? What direction do you want to see the council going in with Alberta DeJetley on the county council? I want to have a cohesive council. I want us to be able to discuss things civilly, politely to each other and to politely to our constituents who care enough to come to testify that we treat everybody with respect. We listen to their mana'o and we do what is best for the whole community instead of special groups. I want us, it's, it's hard to say we're gonna, lead, we're gonna lead by consensus, but you can't have people pulling you off on all these hundreds of different directions. We should do farming. No, no, we should be building more houses. We should be you know, building roads. We should be doing whatever. We need to come together and agree collectively. Oh, action I think plan. we actually go out and we do it, not just talk about it. We can talk, talk, and talk, and talk, and talk for months, and not do anything. That's frustrating for me. We we need to be action oriented, and we also need to be able to work with the governor, and we also need to be able to work with our mayor. We can't be shooting off in all these different directions. Yeah. So have you been have you seen a lot of that over the last two years or is this more more over a longer span of time that you are concerned with? Uh, the last two years has been really bad. So I think I think we really have to get everybody sitting together. You could say, OK, you we're all in the same canoe. Let's all learn how to paddle together in the right direction instead of paddling off all over the place and not getting anywhere. So that's, that's what I would like to see is us working together as a cohesive unit. Do you have a particular vision when it comes to, to where that unit should go? Do you think it should be more focused on turning on the tap to tourism, more focused on, on innovating new ideas, or more focused on um, further development of, of industries that, that have maybe been planted here already but haven't really grown to a robust fashion you know w when you talk about about tourism in the old days when we did the transition from pineapple to tourism we didn't have anything else that mm. that was it. we had this huge labor force that was going to be unemployed with no job skills other than ag so they all had to make the transition from pineapple fields and sugarcane to working in, in the hotel industry and we did that transition and it went very well our problem now is that our tourists have loved us to death if you had asked me three or four years ago what haleakala would be like if we imposed if you had said like five years ago oh 
five years from now, we're going to have a cap on the amount of visitors that can go up to Haleakala for sunrise. I just said, you're crazy. But that's exactly what's happened. We had so many people up there. They were damaging the environment. So once they put the cap on it and could control it, what happened? People can still go up there, but now it's controlled. It's like Haunama Bay on Oahu. Before the cap was put on, it was a nightmare. Yeah. Now it's controllable. We need to put the brakes on, on our public parks and spaces where tourists and local people go so that we can all enjoy it together. I think that our, our thing was on Maui was we began to let too many uh, mainland flights into the island. And that was where the change came over, came through. Because if you have people paying $100, $150 to fly to Maui, oh, great, let's go to Maui. Let's go to Maui for three or four days. Let's go to Maui for a week. Everybody loves coming to Maui. And we just have too many visitors. So we need to start thinking, how can we attract visitors who still love our islands, who still want to be repeat visitors, but we want them to spend a little bit longer, spend a little bit more money in the local economy instead of just being isolated at different hotels. Or worse yet, coming to all of our favorite secret beaches and ponds and waterfalls and just taking it over. Yeah. Uh, I just was asked, we just started this. Hawaii uh, Tourist Authority and the Hawaii Visitors Bureau has started a series of, of meetings on every island. Every island has its own steering committee composed of residents from that island. And our goal is to create a roadmap of what each island wants to see happening in their community. And we had our first meeting this past Friday and it was really interesting. A uh, lot of different ideas. They told us when they asked us to sit on these committees that they wanted us to be very verbal and very active. They want active participants in it. And they're putting together all of these different things from Lanai and Maui and Molokai all over the state to get a true feeling of what residents are thinking. Where, where should we take tourism? I, tourism is really important to our island especially. It's a major economy. But do I want 100 tourists down at Shipwreck Beach? No. Do I want 100 people learning how to surf at Lopa? No. You know, we, we, ha we have to have limitations, limits, as to how many visitors are going to be welcome to come to visit us. The vacation house industry, you know, the short-term vacation rentals and the bed and breakfasts, people who have bought into the short-term rentals are having a really hard time because they're going, well, I got this house, I bought it to use as a vacation rental, and now you're telling me I can't do it? Yes, we're telling you you can't do it because it's impacting our neighborhoods. I think what people don't realize or, or maybe something that we as human beings have lost the capacity for in 2020, it's compromise. Um, the, the two examples that, that you mentioned with Haleakala and um, what was, what was it? Honama. Honama Bay. Those are, are really interesting examples because those are government controlled places where they can impose restrictions on the numbers. And by, by putting those restrictions on their own space, they were able to preserve it for the general public at large. And so that the quality of the experience was much better for everybody that visited there and it's preserved for, for the residents here. That is a, a great example of what is 
really at the foundation of, of how Western civilization was founded, which is this concept of liberty. You know, Cicero has this quote that I love, and it's, we are slaves to the law in order to be free. And in America, when, when they were writing the Constitution, that, that was the idea. You know, we have freedom, but, but true freedom is, is anarchy, you know, no rules, no nothing. What we really have in America is liberty. We've got rules structure that that everybody abides by these these restrictions that we all find reasonable enough that allows us to to move through life in a peaceable and happy manner it is the liberty is the idea behind that um you know life liberty and the pursuit of happiness liberty allows the pursuit of happiness because we we allow for things like seatbelt rules and speed limits things that that regulate us but in a fashion that's tolerable so that everybody gets to have joy in life and when it comes to industry and politics we have lost the capacity to compromise you know i think when i'm listening to what you're saying it it sounds really reasonable it, you know i'm thinking to myself yeah businesses need to adjust their practices for the the well-being of everybody but i also have the lawyer brain that's that's knows how corporate structures work that knows how corporate ethics work uh and and i have the understanding that there's a lot of people who might be listening to this interview right now and they're hearing you know any sort of limitation or regulation is an infringement on their freedom their freedom to operate, their constitutional right under the Commerce Clause not to be infringed upon. And man, that is just a bogus, selfish concept that I, I'm, I'm fed up with. And, you know, I, I have been highly critical of hotel and lodging in the past, but man, they are doing a great job of self-regulating when it comes to, to the, the COVID stuff. When it comes to the hotels, they're they like, to. yeah. They, they're we all have it. to be. We all have to understand that yes, tourism is a major part of our industry in Hawaii. Yeah. We all don't like the overcrowding, so let's work together to figure out what we need to do to give residents and visitors the quality of life they deserve. And I think I, I don't want you coming over to Lanai and having to deal with three hundred people walking around Lanai City. Uh, that would not be enjoyable at all. So when you go to Lahaina, you expect it to be crowded, right? You expect it to be crowded. You expect mm. it to be crowded. And as a local person going to Lahaina, I kind of like seeing all of that activity. But I choose to go to Lahaina where it's busy. Or I could choose to come to Lanai where it's quiet. Or I could choose to go out to Hana and be isolated somewhere and not expect 100 cars to come down to my favorite swimming hole. So yes, we do, we do, we do need balance. That's, that's what I'm saying we need to all agree on is that we will create balance in our economies. Yeah, and I think that needs to come from a place of respect for what everybody's doing. Um, a lot of the, the folks who are, are kind of anti-business and anti-plan or anti-opening up at all, they're killing me because I'm seeing this willingness to compromise from so many different angles, this willingness to come up with, with a good plan. And there's just this large contingent of a very loud group. And it might not even be the majority. It might be the minority, but they are so loud and they are opposed to any idea that has come forward that, that will, will bring any change to the current status quo, which is high unemployment, 
um, long lines for food distributions, a lot of uncertainty. And for some reason, rather than allowing any money or commerce to come to, to Maui in the form of, of film or, or safe travel, uh, it's we are going to poo-poo every idea because we want agriculture. But then when you finally talk to the, the folks who are keep on spouting this idea, agriculture, agriculture, that's the only future for Maui. Down to a one, everybody's talking about agritourism, which is the same boat that we're in. It's that tourism boat. You know, uh, it's infuriating to me, Alberta. More than 10 years ago, I was, you know, we had a Hawaii agritourism industry group association and I was part of the original group and that's what we were touting that somehow or another we would be able to bring tourists to our farms do the food tasting or the planting or the farm experience thing but then you have all these regulations against it oh you can't bring two buses up into this so you have to you have to have regular toilets you need to do this you need to do that and it becomes all very complicated so I, I opened up my farm to uh, visiting groups. They were mainly Kamaina people from Oahu or from Maui, visiting from Maui. And they always loved it. And I started doing these uh, farm parties and got called on the carpet for it because apparently in my contract, I'm not allowed to have group parties, activities at my farm with alcohol. And it was a BYOB. It was all always very strictly regulated. We had uh, people acting as security. We had parking. We made sure that no nobody underage was there, that nobody left the property drunk. And people had a ball down there. And then I got called into the office and said, oh, naughty, naughty, naughty. You do, you do know that this is not allowed on your lease. And I go, oh, sorry. It won't happen again. But it's there's so many regulations we all have to live with. Mm, it's that litigious society that we live in. I think yeah. everybody is is too quick uh, to to threaten or to to sue. I mean, the idea of of having a farm tour is a great idea until you start considering uh, accessibility issues for yes. for folks who are um, physically challenged, uh, disabled. I'm, I'm not sure what the the most up to date PC term is, um, but but really anybody who's who's not able bodied to the fullest extent um, would have a hard time navigating a farm and if you're going to have a tour you need to make it accessible for everybody and yeah. that's that's one of those things that's where clearly good intentions get in the way of of other opportunities i'm not going to be the person to say we need to get rid of accessibility standards nobody is no politician is going to be willing no. to say that because you'd be dragged through the mud for that sort of thing but but Man, some sort of loosening of regulations might be kind of nice when it comes to allowing folks to show off their farms and make make money off of that. Yeah. One of the things that's really hard on Maui and Maui County is when you bring up affordable housing, because right yeah. away you have ten people yelling and screaming, "I don't want affordable housing next to me," because a lot of people put affordable housing with low cost housing with lower class people and it's all going to turn into a huge slum and in five years it's going to be filled with old cars and junky we're just going to have a junky neighborhood right next to us so I'm looking at the affordable housing package and saying okay we need to be building houses but in actuality what we need to be doing is we need to be building communities yeah because you look at dream city Kahului 
when that whole thing was built. They couldn't build something like that today. It, it just wouldn't pass. But if we can think now, okay, we need housing really desperately. We have this land here. How can we turn this project into a community where real people live, where people know who their neighbors are, where there's a gathering spot within that complex that people congregate for a community hall, a park, a dog park. That's where I've met you too with yeah. a dog park. But you, you know, small mom and pop businesses where you can, instead of running down to Safeway, you can go to the neighborhood store to pick up the milk that you forgot to buy at Safeway or Whole Foods or whatever. But people were, even a small post office where you could go to pick up your mail and see people coming and going. Do you, do you know what I'm trying to say is not yeah. a community where, you know, don't get me wrong, Maui, Lani, and Kahalui, Wailuku, in between, it's a beautiful subdivision, but if you drive through it, it's all fenced. You never see anybody walking. Everybody's always driving through fast, up and down. But get, get, communities where people can walk in the evenings and say hi to their neighbors or they know who their neighbor is do you know who your neighbors are yeah i, I yeah you, you live out of the sticks so you know who your neighbors are Papa <laughs> <laughs> color it's still totally different but uh yeah uh when i'm on maui i stay at uh, leisure estates of mayahu and i walk my dog there and i've gotten to know quite a number of my neighbors they see me and I see them and we say hello and stop to talk to them for a few minutes before we go on. And that's part of being living in a community. So and there's a lot of reasons to do that. One of the, one of the fascinating things I learned when I was really digging deep into that Oahu resiliency strategy that, that they came up with was part of the plan involved like community groups founding like neighborhood groups. Yes. And because they, they found whenever you look at any area that's been devastated by a natural disaster, what you'll find is all the, the areas where the neighborhoods are tight knit, where people know each other, where they grew up, they recover faster. And, and there's generally less of a loss of life and property in those areas, um, as opposed to the areas where nobody knows who their neighbors are or where it's, you know, transient accommodations or, you know, where people only live part of the year, uh, condos uh, a lot of what you might think of there and man when i moved into my neighborhood i was i was walking my dog one day and it was actually one of my neighbors that told me he's like you need to walk your dog every day and i, I said what do you mean he's like people need to see that you live here that you're not just you know some that's some guy that yeah not just some prospector not somebody that's that's trying to to fix up a house and flip it like people need to see that you live here and when he, you know, after he said that, I, I try to walk my dog, you know, at least, you know, four or five times a week. And I'm, I wave to everybody that I see. And it really makes a difference. It just how, it does. yeah. But and, you get that concept that we need to build neighborhoods. We need to build communities when we talk about housing. Yes. Because that neighbor might be, their, their son or daughter might be marrying your son or daughter. Yeah. <laughs> Proximity is the, the highest determiner for, for who you're going to wed, you know? <laughs> I know. It's, it's, it's all very interesting. I'm really excited. I, I have been really, really blessed to have been endorsed or supported by huge different factions in the community. So I have developers and I have unions. I have labor unions. I have builders. I have planners. I, rich people, poor people, in-between people. 
I am just blown away with the amount of support that I'm getting and I'm really, really touched. It's, it really means a lot to me. One of the things that I really want to know more about is the homeless people. We don't mm. have homeless people on the night because it's a privately owned island. So if somebody comes in, ends up sleeping in Dole Park, if they please have the right of entry to ask them, to gently ask them to leave the park because it's private property. And a lot of times in the past, especially with my taxi, I've become involved in these because, you know, you're gonna have to leave the island, but do you wanna leave it in the back of a police car? Yeah. I, I wouldn't. So I, I always, if I see that on the verge of happening, I'll always go up to whoever is being escorted off and say, you know, I'm going down to the harbor and I'm just riding along by myself. Would you like to come with me instead of going in the police car? And they always say yes. Yeah. <laughs> so I've, I've met some very interesting people, but I have also gotten myself into a little bit of trouble every now and again, where one of the officers said, Alberta, you have to stop being so friendly with people who are total strangers. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's just who I am. It's just who I am. I'm going to help whoever needs help. That's aloha. I'm, That's the it, idea. It, it, it is. Everybody's a stranger until you reach out your hand and say hello. Of course, I can't shake your hand now with COVID. <laughs> <laughs> but I can still say hello. <laughs> so heading in, you know, the, the primaries, uh, Gabe edged you out in the, the primary. Um, are, are you concerned at all? No. with how the general election will go? <sighs> okay, I was blindsided uh, in the primary. I, you know, I look at the camp because I'm my own treasurer. It's really hard getting your campaign committee together and working together and finding people to help you do different things. So I ended up being the candidate, the treasurer, just everything. Yeah. I, d I do have two people who are deputy treasurers for me. One is my son, and the other is a, a, another close Lenai friend. But I handle the checkbook and I do everything. And it's just, I saw how much money Gabe had in his account, and I thought, okay, I'm doing really well in, in contributions. So I am spending money, my own money, campaign money, advertising. So I was blindsided when I saw how many votes he had. I had no idea that this pack was doing paint for all of the advertising. So yeah. I saw what happened in the primary. So I am more conscious of it. And I do know that I have to ask people who are supporting me, not just to vote for me themselves, but to reach out to everybody else that they know to ask them to please vote for me. Because well, if, if I want to send you a check, who, who do we make the checks out to? How can people donate? Do you have it online? Yes, I have it online on my website. So my website is albertadjetly.com and there's a donation thing through Wix. So you can donate, donate online. If you'd like to send me a donation, the check should be made payable to the Alberta Djetli Campaign Committee and it can be sent to me at PO Box 630601, Lanai, Hawaii, 96763. So either way, by, by email online, or by uh, by check, and one of the, the Jetly campaign commit committee. Yeah, one of the things that is happening is is I have been very blessed with some bigger donations. I need small donations. I need 
10, 15, $20 donations so that I can have match, a matching funds contribution. I am nowhere near being able to have matching funds because most of my donations have been over $100. So $10 donations, $20 donations, $50 donations, anything under $100 would be really, really appreciated. So I can try to get matching funds. Can you, um, on, on your website, if people want to contribute, can they set it to, to contribute once a week, that type of thing? Oh yeah, you you can. You, so if you they can. do like ten bucks a week, so if I wanna I wanna donate a hundred dollars to Alberta to Jetly, um, what you're saying is it's better for me to go ahead and set it ten bucks oh. a week. No, 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 because if if you send me it anything over a hundred dollars, it's going to trigger. So if you send me six different seven different donations, and it's over a hundred dollars, I'm not going to be used able to use that as a public. Gotcha. It, I don't think it will meet the threshold. I'm not really sure of the finer points, but I think no. Just if you want to do a twenty dollar donation, that would be wonderful. So AlbertaDeJetly.com, twenty dollar donations. That's that's what we're looking for here. Give me five. Whatever. Whatever. <laughs> just whatever you can. Whatever I don't you care. Can. No, a lot of people do not realize that. Even the, more important than that, don't send me the five dollars or don't send me the twenty dollars. Pick up the phone. Call your relatives and say, hey, I just heard Alberta on the telephone, on the radio, on whatever. Will you vote for her? Because I'm going to vote for her. Will you vote for her? I hope you will. And tell them that. I, I actually have told organizations endorsing me, look, I know you're going to be sending me a check, but more than your check, what I need is for you to tell your members, vote Alberta, vote for Alberta, vote for Alberta. And hopefully their members will go out and vote for me because... It's, you know, it's just what they need to do so that I can be the next council member from the night. I have, I have this very, very, very deep love for this community. And I think a lot of it stems from, I know where we've been in the past and I know we should, where we should be heading into the future. So I, I need everybody's support so that we can aim toward that future. Every person who has owned this island from the very start has eventually failed where they were forced to sell it because it wasn't sustainable and this, this is happening now where you know the hotels are very fancy i mean it's really high end it looks like they spread from architectural digest it's too fancy for me but it's not it's 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 good because we, we are on this very small upper percentage of visitors who can pay, you know, like $1,000 a month range. That's a very rarefied market, yeah. but they still have money and they still can travel. And that's the market that we're aiming for now. So even if only a few of them came, we still, have, we still will have the jobs it would be pointless for us to try to go to a lower end market where we have people paying $50 a night. We can't support our economy here. And we $50. saw everybody before the pandemic, that was the major complaint with tourism in Hawaii. Civil B, I mean, it, it seems like forever ago before the pandemic, but I remember that that's what Civil Beat was was running an article on at least once a week. It seemed like the the number of tourists is going up and the value that they're bringing, the amount of money that they're spending as a net is going down. So it was it was grappling with that question of why are we embracing the low 
low price tourist to, yes. to begin with. And now, yeah, the pandemic hit and maybe, maybe some people forgot, but that high volume model was already under fire before this. And, and rightfully so, I think. I think so. All you have to do is go out to the airport and look at all the parked cars, rental cars that are parked all out in that, those fields. Think of what it will be like when all those cars are back on the road. Yeah. I think you should ship them all back to the mainland myself. <laughs> but it's, it's the balance. It's figuring out what is going to work for all of us and how to maintain this balance. Because that's what life is all about. I don't want I don't want to be mean and say, no, no, you can't come to Maui. You can't come to Lanai. We don't want you here at all. We want you to come. We want you to experience what we have to offer. We want to share our aloha spirit with you, our, our love of our island with you. But please, be respectful of the culture of the different community groups that you are involved with. And I hate saying this, but be pono. Do, live right treat other people the way you want them to treat you treat other people with respect treat yeah. other people with kindness i am um, you know there's the golden rule that, that we all know but i i think we should evolve to the platinum rule which is instead of treating other people how you would like to be treated treat other people and other communities how they would like to be treated so if you come to to maui you know, treat Maui the way that, that the people here would like it to be treated, you know, with that, that kindness and respect and love and don't leave your, your junk around. Uh, because, <laughs> man, even, even with all the tourists, and that's, that's another one of those things. We've been blaming tourists for years it's, for it's all the pollution. people that leave and on the trash. That's not them. I go to Iao Valley still throughout this whole pandemic, even when we had nobody coming in. There was still trash, trash at Yao Valley. We gotta, we gotta tell people clean up, dirty diapers and. and oh yeah, and we we have that all the time here at different isolated spots, you know. But they also leave behind television sets and refrigerators. We have a perfectly mm. good metal pickup. We just had a huge metal pickup. With oh, I would say there must have been over two hundred trucks showing up with all of their junk. So there's no reason to drop all of your junk out in the boonies. Yeah. Just hold on to them until the next pickup and then take it down to be disposed of. And it's free. It's yeah. totally free. And it's better for everybody. Better I, for everybody. I know. Yeah. I know. All right, Alberta. I don't want to keep you too much longer. So so let's let's wrap it up. Let's go with the the five questions uh, towards oh, the now end. Now where here. did I put your questions? Well I'll, okay, I'll so ask I them again. You, I already told you that the person I most admire is my Hawaiian grandmother, but my Japanese grandmother also had a very, very hard life. She came to Hawaii as a picture bride, moved to the island of Kauai, married somebody after she arrived there, you know, it was a arranged marriage, got married off, right off the boat, got pregnant. Her son was still an infant, uh, still under a year or so old when her husband died. So she came back to Oahu thinking that she would have to go back to Japan. And my grandfather, instead of having her go back to Japan, he married her. They had seven more, she had seven more children with my grandfather and then he died. Oh, wow. Yeah. So she had to figure out how she was, she was very tiny, like under maybe four and a half. She couldn't have been more than four and a half feet tall, tiny, tiny lady. She raised all of her children, and all of her children are like us. They're all movers and shakers. 
all, all of my cousins are movers and shakers. It's gone down into the next generation too. It's got to come from from tough people that are that are yeah. used to to persevering. Really tough ladies. Tough. I like tough it. Ladies. If, if you know so Maui, <laughs> we had that resolution where we are going to be embracing a feminist economy for our recovery plan, which I love. I love the idea. I love the resolution and and. You are like the the living embodiment of it. You know this this female entrepreneur whose whose legacy is of these powerful women who who persevered through difficulty. No, but, That's an awesome awesome message to send. But the thing about it is, I do all these things, but I don't do it for money. I I need to start thinking about oh maybe I should find it paying a real job. <laughs> <laughs> but I really love what this the things that I'm doing. And I, my, my sister tells me, well, if you don't get elected, you need to stay at home and you need to write your book because you should have a book in you by now. I do. You definitely should. In my bottom you, drawer. <laughs> you need to do something with all those notes that you have, at least work something out with the museum or the University of Hawaii. I have a history book. I have a okay. history book about Lanai. It was published in 2015 and it's a pictorial. It was published by Arcadia Publishing Company. They have more than 200 titles of books across the United States. It's called Images of America, and then they do a small town. And people who travel a lot collect these books as they're traveling. So I have my Lanai book, and it's still selling. It's not making me rich, yeah. <laughs> but it's out there and it's selling. That's cool. I like that. <laughs> All right, let's, let's move on to the questions. First question, you, you already mentioned it, but maybe for, for those not listening, what book would you recommend? The, the book that means the most to me and has meant the most to me has been Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's book on death and dying. Because we, coming from different cultures, we all have different perceptions of what death is. And if it's happening to you where somebody close or dear to you is dying, it's very, very hard because you go through these different stages of grief that ranges from anger and depression, just being like totally bummed out. And for a while, I was totally bummed out until you can understand why you're feeling this way and can move forward. In one year and a half period, so in an 18-month period, after my husband died, several years later, five of my best friends died within an 18-month period, but much closer together overall. And I was totally devastated. I go, everybody that I was holding dear to my heart, has left me. Now I have a do not resuscitate on my kitchen wall, you know, on my refrigerator. And it might, one of my doctors asked me, why don't you want to stick around? I mean, what do you mean do not resuscitate? And I said, I've been there, done that. All of my friends are waiting for me on the other side. Thank you very much, but I would really like to see them again. Somewhere out there, they're still out there. You know what I mean? So when it's time for me to go, I want people to remember that, that I am going to be happy. Whenever the Lord calls me, I'm going to be ready to go. I've lived a really, really full life. I've really enjoyed myself. I love my family dearly. But when it's my number's called, I'm gone. Well, so that's for, that, for many, many years to come that that won't, uh, oh, that won't happen. We're, oh, we're, yeah. we're happy having you stuck down here with the rest of us. The rest of the oi polloi. You know what my answer though now to this people dying on me? I cultivate younger friends. <laughs> <laughs> 
have That's a lot of secret. young friends. Have a lot of young friends in your life because it it's there's so much that you can offer them and share with them. And I absolutely adore all of the young people that I have in my life. Excellent. Uh, we we already did who do you admire and why? We'll, we'll, we'll skip over that unless you want to supplement that. We got both grandmas. Mm-hmm. Um, let's go to number three. When have you failed and what did you learn from it? Well, I failed big, big time, several times. <laughs> but you know what you do? You pick yourself up and you get moving again. After I closed my newspaper, Hana News, I was totally bummed because my major advertiser went bankrupt. And I couldn't afford, I knew I, there's no way I could afford to keep the paper going. So I closed it and I picked up the paper the very next day after I closed it. And there's an ad for um, staff for the SS Constitution. That was a tour boat that was doing inter-island tours. So the interviews were that day in, in Wailea. So I got dressed, got in my car, drove to Wailea, got interviewed and became a person on board the Constitution. <laughs> So you need to, regardless of how bad things may seem, force yourself to pick yourself up and to move on because there's another adventure. There's another thing out there waiting for you. It it was a real good experience for me and I loved being on the ocean and that eventually led me full circle back to Hana where I became a full-time writer. So you never know, you know, you have to take that leap, take that leap of faith. Just keep swimming. uh, All right. Question number four, where is your happy place? I lived in Hana from 1967, 68, all the way through till 1994, 1996, actually, when I sold my property in Hana. And my two sons are born there. My husband's ashes are scattered there. I remarried and my second husband's ashes are also scattered there. I just have really, really deep roots. Although I grew up here in Lanai, I have really deep roots on in the Hana area. And my son Tony still lives there. So he lives on a property that he was able to buy. And the lady who owned that property, I think I think somehow or another she reached out across time and got us into it because He's turned it into this most magnificent, beautiful property. It has an ocean view. He's he's farms on it. He has um, he has cattle on it. Uh, he now has a food truck. It's called Tony's, and it's right along the roadside above Hamoa Beach. And I think I have spent so much time on on Annie's place. I I still call it Annie's place because she was the original owner of it. Every time I go there, I feel this huge joy in my heart. Uh, she and I used to go, I used to pick her up to go to church with her every Sunday when I lived in Hana after my husband was gone. And I just feel so thankful that somehow or another, my family is able to be on her place. You know, my son's done an awful lot of work on it and I'm so proud of him. So that's my happy place. That is a good happy place. I, I want to go and uh, check out that food truck now. Tell your son. I know your mom. Please. Yeah, beautiful. He's going to have it. He had a blessing for it uh, last week, which I was not able to go to because of the quarantine. So he's yeah. going to do another blessing again in October when the travel bans. 
I like to think he's doing it for me, but it's he's doing it so that more of his friends can be there. He's doing it for you. Let's stick with that story. <laughs> and finally, what one piece of advice would you give to anyone listening? Don't be afraid. Don't think that you can't do things. You can do things. Don't be afraid. Reach out. Reach out and go for it. Because you're only going to pass this way once. Just make the most of it. Just do it. Just go out and do it. So that's where I am now. I'm reaching out and I'm doing it. I love it. I love it, Alberta. It is, it is a pleasure talking with you. I, I really hope that, that you are successful in, in your, your council race. Um, I'm super happy that you're in the race. And no matter what happens, I'm happy that you're around. I'm happy you're doing stuff. You're, you're a really um, sweet person. And, and whatever you're up to, you, you just keep on being you. Because I've enjoyed all of our conversations that we've had. Um, and, and yeah, that's, that's it. That's, that's all. Count me amongst your, your young friends. Um, we could be friends now. And, and, <laughs> and I'll be now, one of the things that I am going to do after I get on the council is I'm going to figure out a way that people can donate benches to the dog park because we have two little benches there. Mm. The upcountry dog park is really nice. Oh, the upcountry really dog nice. park blows our dog park out of the water. I know. I know. Just, I don't understand why they don't just make the fenced in area that Bigger. much larger. Yeah, we've, <laughs> we've got so much space around there. It would be so fun to, to give the dogs just a nice hill to run up and down and stuff like that. Oh, yeah. And then to have little benches scattered around so more of us could sit down instead of having to, you know, lie up against the fence. But you could do a, a bench and donate it to your favorite dog. So when you, when you get on the council, I will work with you. I will write a grant to the National Association of Realtors, and we will get a, an extra bench and, uh, and maybe a solar shade put up. So now... <laughs> nice now you definitely because i'm only going to do it i'm only going to do it if you get on the council so if anybody listening here is is on the fence on who to vote for if you have a dog for the sake of your dog vote for alberta to jet Leads so that okay. i can i can work with nar to get a, a new okay. bench at the dog park so uh, the other thing that i'm really passionate about is you you do know that i was really involved with with starting the lanai cat sanctuary Mm, but I'm, I'm purposely manager. not talking to you about that because I think I think we might be on different sides with the cat issue. Okay. But but you can take care of the cat problem, and I will support people who have feral cat programs in place. So if you have a cat, or if you have a dog, or if you have a horse, or even if you have a monkey, know that I'm really an animal person. So regardless of what kind of animal you have, or fish, or cats, or birds, or whatever vote for me because I'm going to be taking care of them too. <laughs> That's a good plug. I'm, I'm an animal lover. I've got a dog. That's great. All right, Alberta, I will let you get back to running for office as well as running, you know, whatever 50 businesses you've got going right now. <laughs> All right. Thanks Thank so much for so the much. time. I'll I've talk to you so soon. Much fun. I've right. had so much fun. Thank you for asking me to be with you. Goodbye. My pleasure. Bye. Thank you.